Good morning. Morning to those of you watching online as well. We're so glad you could join us today. Thank you to uh, Josh and Penny and the team for your leading us here today. It's been great. Um, you know, at Christmas time, I did something I've never done before. Um, I went to not one, not two, not three, but four separate craft shows, all within a 24-hour period. Now, I don't recommend you do this without a doctor's note because. Uh, it was kind of a life-threatening experience at many moments. Um, and one of the things that I found most interesting about these craft shows is we went to one where this guy was making knives. And he was fashioning them right there on the spot. He had a little forge that was propane-powered. And uh, he was taking these pieces of metal, sticking it into the forge with these tongs until it was red hot, bringing it out, pounding on it, sparks flying, taking it out, sticking it in some water, repeating this again and again and again. And he kind of just had me captivated right there and then. And I was watching um, how he was doing. He had a whole ensemble of knives that were finished, finished products. Some of them, I think, were like for crafts and like just kind of maybe cutting cucumbers or something at home. Some of them, I think, were used to cut like a deer carcass in half. They were giant knives. I don't know what else you would really use them for, but it was fascinating to me, this whole process uh, that he was undergoing, heating these blades up, pounding on them, cooling them, and repeat, repeat, repeat. And it was kind of striking to me at how violent the process was to fashion and to shape these knives into something that could be useful. It was demanding it was exhausting. It was exacting in order to kind of take this raw piece of steel and turn it into something that could be useful. And it got me thinking about the process by which sometimes God needs to be working in our lives to fashion and to shape us. Sometimes he exposes us to some heat and to some hammering, and then he plunges us into some cold water, and he repeats this process again and again. In the last few weeks, we talked about that growing up our whole lives, we get discipled into this way of thinking and living. And then when we become Christians and choose to make Jesus our Lord, and we have to kind of go in a brand new direction, the change that is required for some of us can require a lot of work to reshape us, to help us become the people that God wants us to be. Sometimes we need to go through a vigorous process in order for that to happen. There's been all kinds of people that have been writing lately about how the pandemic has affected the faith of church people. And, so, and they've been kind of talking about um, four different categories that most people would fall into as it relates to faith. Uh, the first are the prodigals, or those would people who would say, I'm no longer a Christian. There was a season in my life, maybe when I was younger, maybe when I, maybe I grew up in a household of faith, but now I've kind of gotten to this point in my life where I don't think I believe that at all anymore. The next would be uh, the nomads, and these would be those who kind of lapsed Christians. They would identify themselves as Christians if you pushed them on what it was they believed but they don't participate in worship. They don't participate in Christian community. They just kind of are completely stepped out of that life. Then there's what they call the habitual churchgoers. These people describe themselves as Christians. They probably attend church on a regular basis or monthly at least. But the core of what they believe, the foundation of their faith has changed. They're not sure what they believe anymore. And a few years ago, we were using the language at work about quiet quitting. People who kept showing up to work every day, but their heart wasn't in it. And they were doing about as little as possible uh, just to get by. This is kind of the habitual churchgoer. You show up, 
You do your thing, you make your appearance. But deep down inside, you're not really sure what it is that you really believe. And then there's those resilient disciples. And in this survey, they kind of describe them this way. Uh, people who attend church at least monthly, month, going to church once a month is now makes you a regular church attender. You engage in church not just on Sunday. You're participating in a small group, in a Bible study. You're serving somewhere. You trust firmly the authority of the scripture. You're committed to a Jesus uh, who personally and affir- you personally and affirm that he was crucified, he was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death, and that your faith somehow can't just be about you, that your faith must have an application beyond yourself that actually brings about transformation to your community. So they would kind of look at these kind of four groups and say, all right, most people fall into one of these four groups. Now, that's interesting in and of itself, but the part that interests me, and the piece I want to talk about a little bit this morning, is movement. Which group did you start in? And which of these four groups would you say you're in now? Where would you say, kind of, if you think about the last five years, how has your faith progressed, regressed, gone forward, gone backwards? How has it moved? Or maybe you'd say, look, I've been a resilient disciple all of these these years. Maybe something happened to you. Someone said something to you. You did something. Maybe your childhood faith didn't hold up under the rigors of university or just adult problems. Maybe you've been in a season of deconstructing your faith and you're just not really sure anymore. You've taken it all apart or you've taken pieces of it apart and it's sitting there on the table and you're not sure, am I going to reassemble it? Is it going to amount to something again? You know, there's a lot of conversations going on about people deconstructing their faith. Do you know who the biggest group of people, demographically speaking, are who are deconstructing their faith? We're tempted to say young people, but it's not young people. It's boomers. It's people who have young adult kids who've walked away from church. They've walked away from faith, and they're trying to figure out for themselves, do we still believe this? Or maybe you grew up in what I would call the gospel of Canadian culture Christianity, which is God's nice, you're nice, be nice. That's it. Just kind of be nice. And that's all that there is to Christian faith. But the problem with that is there's an ache in our heart. There's a brokenness in our soul that needs attending to. And we just kind of know that is not enough. So how about you? When you think about your own movement of faith, where would you say that you land today? I like this idea of resilient faith. Faith that gets knocked down, you learn, you recalibrate, you get back up again. And you get back up again even more fiercely focused on following Jesus. If I was to give this, a simple definition to this idea of resilient faith, it would be this. It's a faith with the expectation that God will keep providing what I need no matter what. I've got an expectation That even though I may just have the minuscule, smallest amount of faith, that faith is a key that unlocks the door to a generous and gracious God who will continue to move in my life, even if my faith is small. And he's going to meet me right where I am and walk with me and get me where I need to go. I don't know about you. This is the kind of faith that I want. This is the kind of faith that I need. But I want to be clear with you today. You can't study this kind of faith. This is not a faith to be learned. 
You cannot have resilient faith by leaving here after three weeks of this series and having taken piles of notes and memorized all the scriptures that we looked at. That won't do it. In the same way that if you want to build muscle mass, watching other people work out on YouTube will not make you stronger. You want to grow in your faith? Take a step of faith. You open your hands and say, Lord, here's my life. And I am going to trust you with it. I'm going to trust you with part of it that maybe I've been withholding from you. I'm going to trust you. I've been holding the whole thing from you. I'm going to trust you with a little bit of it. And I'm going to actually live my life as if you are my Lord and Savior. That's the only way you can have resilient faith. You cannot learn it. You have to put it into practice. And for the next three weeks, this is what we're going to talk about. And if you were to ask me what my hope is, it would just simply be this. Especially for those of you that aren't sure where you're at right now. You're not sure the state of your faith. And quite frankly, you've been hoping to avoid this conversation. Is that the Spirit of God would spark something and stir something in you. And you would begin to trust Him again. We're going to look today at a passage in Colossians, which is just so spectacular. And I think it's got some practical things for us that might be helpful. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. You can look it up if you're watching along on, at home as well. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 9 to 14, but I'm going to start reading from verse 3, just because it's, uh, these are such great verses. If you're using the Bible in the chair in front of you, it's on page 1831. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Paul writes this, we always thank God, the Lord of our Lord, of our, the Lord, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the truth of the gospel that has come to you all over the world. All over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. You learned it from Epaphras. Now, I'll pause here for a second. If you'd like a little Bible study opportunity, kind of a challenge, go home. You can go look it up online. Look at all the verses that have to do with Epaphras, and you get a picture or a snapshot of this amazing man of faith. Back to, the, back to verse 7. Our Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to God the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. 
So I want to talk about resilient faith. And I want to, Paul talks about three things here that I think will be helpful to us. There's lots in here, but I know you've got lunch and supper plans. So let me just take a moment to look at three. The first in verses 9 and 10, Paul says that God is going to show you his will. He's going to show you his will. How many times have you ever wondered, God, why am I going through this? What's going on here? I feel like this piece of steel that's been put into the fire and put into the water and put into the fire and being hammered on and hammered on again and again. Why am I going through this? What is your plan? What are you trying to accomplish in my life? And what is your purpose? And Paul invites us to pray that the Spirit of God would help us discern what his will is. That the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us as believers will help us discern this, meaning that you and I have to intentionally create time in our calendar and in our schedule to sit down, hands open, praying, Bible open, reading, um, journal open, taking notes, and asking the Lord to show us things so that we can grow in an understanding of His will. Maybe we have some friends praying for us along the way to help us in a season of discernment. But the first thing we need to think about is saying, God, where am I going to create space in my week where I can sit down and say, Lord, what are you up to here? What is it that you're doing in this season of my life? In fact, I would even give you these words to write down as you pray this. Lord, as I think about the specific situation in my life, help my response to be shaped by your will and a desire to please you. Show me your will. And I'll know I'm in your will because the thing that I will be doing will please you. Now, I want to say something um, that I know you're not going to like because I don't like it. And so here I'm going to ask for me. I'm going to ask that you will not respond to me via angry email for at least 24 hours. Can you agree to that? You just listen to what I have to say. Sit with it. And if you're still mad at me, you can email me and I'll let it go to spam. <laughs> if you're in a challenging season and you're hoping the answer is for God to make some big change in your life, don't be shocked if the biggest change the Spirit wants to make is in you. Not in someone else and not in your circumstances. One of the things that I observed in the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life and in the lives of others is in those moments where we are pleading with God to make a big change, the change that He most fundamentally wants to make is in us. Meaning God might say to you, I'm not going to change your circumstances. I'm going to change you. I'm not going to change that person, even though maybe they need some changing. I'm going to change you. That the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts might be the thing that God is most interested in doing. And this requires a recalculating or a recalibration in our hearts and how we think about things. How many of you have heard the voice of shame from your GPS? You were driving somewhere, you had your GPS on, and you completely missed your turn, and you're going the wrong direction now. And what does it say to you? Recalculating. Recalculating. You're not going the right direction. You're doing this wrong. Recalculating. God may need to do some recalculating in our own hearts as we wrestle with what the, His will is for us in this time. The second thing he promises us is power, Colossians 1.11. Now, we talk a lot in our culture about being enough, 
not feeling like we're enough, wanting to be enough, wondering if we are enough. And that's a really important conversation. Let me make a distinction between our value and our capacity. When it comes to value, you are in Christ enough. You were created by the holy God who created the universe. And when he created the world, he said it was good. But when he created humanity, he said it is, it's very good. He created us very good. Meaning no accomplishment that you could ever achieve will add to that value. And no failure you would ever have would detract from that value. You are a child of God, and the great work of a disciple is trying to get to the place where you make sure that the label that matters most to you is that you belong to Him. Your value is secure. You are enough in Christ. Now, let's talk about capacity. You aren't enough. You aren't. You're sinful, you're broken, and you're finite. You're a human being. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I will never be good at basketball. Everybody makes the mistake of saying, oh, you're tall, so you must be good at basketball. Come play with us. I've got two left feet. I can't dribble. I can't shoot. I've sprained my ankle more times playing basketball uh, than in any other sport because I'm horrible at it. And it doesn't matter. I can't do that. I also, it doesn't matter how stubborn I am, cannot lift a piano and move it by myself. I can't do it. I'm not good at math, like really bad at math. My youngest son is taking linear algebra right now. And I was like, why would you do that to yourself? But he enjoys it. Our temptation is to say that because we cannot play basketball while moving a piano and completing algebra, I'm not enough. That's our capacity. But our value is not found in our abilities. Our value is found in a relationship through Christ. And so God knows that we lack capacity. We're broken, we're sinful, we have struggles, and so he makes his power available to us. Let me just give you a quick examples of way that God gives us his power. Encouragement. How many of you have ever been encouraged by somebody? It just felt like you got some muscle mass or something instantly infused into your body. You had like a can-do attitude suddenly come over you because somebody encouraged you. Someone was kind to you. Everybody else at work all day was miserable to you. But someone was kind to you and it just kind of gave you an infusion of strength. Truth, if you've ever been lost, if you've ever been lost and you're trying to find your way, you get so disoriented. North becomes south, east becomes west. You have no idea where you're going. In the same way in life, when we get lost, we get so disoriented. And someone might set us down over a cup of coffee and give us a word of truth. And as they do, it's like the trees shrink. We see our bearings. We can see exactly where we need to go. And we experience power to move forward. I think about peace. When you're a mess, when you're unsettled in your spirit, when you're anxious, when the Holy Spirit then comes and wraps his arms around you, giving you the peace that you need to settle you down and help you recognize the thing that is most important next. These are all different ways that God, through his power, gives us what we need. But he notices also in that verse, when he's talking about power, he talks about two other words that I don't like very much. Patience, and endurance. Hmm. Paul's talking about here about time. If you're going to have resilient faith, if you're going to experience God's power in your life, this is going to take time. 
God might not give you everything you need in the moment you need it. He may give you in installments, some here, some now, some later. Tertullian said this once about time. He said, patience has been given such preeminence in matters pertaining to God that no one can fulfill his precept or teaching or perform any work pleasing to God without patience. Have you ever said something too quickly? Moved too quickly? Acted too quickly? Spoke too soon? Responded to an email too quickly? There's this great practice called, in, in, called um, the power of the gap, meaning you have this stimulus that happens and your immediate thing is to respond. Someone says something, oh, I'm saying something back. You get an email, oh, I'm emailing right back. Someone does something, oh, I got something for you. Instant stimulus response. The power of the gap is to say, okay, something happened, somebody said something, they did something, and I'm going to take a little spiritual Sabbath moment here and take a breath. I'm going to give myself an hour, a day, a month before I respond. What are you doing in that moment? You're creating space for the Holy Spirit to instruct you and guide you about the wise thing to do. Some of you are much more sanctified than I am. And I know that your first response to every stimulus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. That might not always be the response. And this is where we find God's power. We take a pause. We sit in the moment. We let the Lord provide us what we need in that moment. And then we don't get fired. We don't get divorced. We don't get imprisoned. It's a very great gift as God meets us in that moment with his power. The final thing that Paul says in this passage is what he's done for us. Verses 12 and 13. I love this phrase. He says, God has qualified me to share in his inheritance. Now, I'm fascinated by this word qualified. Many of you have gone to university or high school, and you know this experience. Um, You worked hard, and you got qualified. They gave you a syllabus or a list of assignments to complete, and you did them. You read the books, you did the papers, they may not have all been A's, but you finished the work and the consequence was you got qualified. You've got a severe coffee addiction from it, but you got qualified. Paul says the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He's made you enough. You, he's made you worthy of being the daughter or the son of God. Aren't you glad that you don't have to qualify yourself? That you don't have to keep score and hope that you're doing enough good things to qualify yourself? He has qualified you. Satan may try to disqualify you. Someone else might try to disqualify you. You may have disqualified yourself. But God has qualified you to receive his inheritance in the kingdom. We didn't do the work. He did. We didn't complete the assignment. He did. We didn't pass the test. He did. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And through that, through faith, we're qualified. So resilient faith is our rightful expectation that the God who qualifies us, who's gone this far and done this much for us already, is not going to let us down the rest of the way. And so we can open up our hands and say, here it is. 
Here's my life. I'm entrusting it to you. Just one more comment I want to make, and then we'll move to the Lord's table here. I realize all this talk about forge and steel and fire and hammers and smoke and sparks and all of that stuff and, uh, makes it feel like this is a laborious, heavy lifting, exhausting experience. But it's interesting to me that Paul ends this passage by talking about joy. He ends this passage talking about joy. And you know, sometimes when we're in the midst of trying to figure out our faith, we're trying to discern where we are with the Lord, what's going on in our life, joy can feel really, really far away. William Barclay uh, wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, and he tried to summarize all of Jesus' uh, statements to his disciples in three points. He must have been a good Baptist preacher. And he said, these are the three things that Jesus kind of captured Jesus' call to his disciples. Number one, be fearless. Number two, be constantly in good trouble. And number three, be absurdly joyful. When you know that your faith is based on the one who has qualified you, who sent his son to the cross to die a death that you could not have died, to live a life that you and I could not live, and when he, we know that our inheritance is based and all that we have coming to us is based on what he has done for us, there's reason to be joyful. Another translation of these verses says, it is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. Let me pray for us.